And we are back with the Black Shoe Diaries podcast. Chris Grovich here um, with a change in the lineup. Jeff Jundstrom joining hey, everybody. us. How are you? Very well. From the uh, fantastic suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we have a guest from LostLetterman.com, Mr. Jim Weber. How are you, Jim? Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, certainly our pleasure. And we wanted you on to talk about not only your website, but more specifically some Penn Staters and you know, see where they are in your grand expertise of essentially where are they now. Um, first, about the site, why did you get into it? Was it just sort of a... You know, as most blogs are, a sort of weird obsession that became a website? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to describe it. I mean, I've always been a college football and basketball nut. I uh, haven't gone to Michigan, and, you know, there's a lot of sites out there that already cover their schools. So there was MGO Blog for Michigan, there's Black Sheet Diaries for Penn State, 11 Warriors for Ohio State. So I thought, you know, I can be a college football and basketball site whose niche is to look up where former players are now that, you know, people remember so well, but, you know, as high profile as they were just a couple of years ago, they just kind of vanish either after their college playing career or if they're lucky enough to go on to the NFL, they still kind of fade into obscurity when they're done playing there as well. And it is very interesting in the sense that the it, it's it's unlike professional sports where, you know, you can follow someone's career generally, you know, the people that stick out in your in your mind the most, you can follow them for 8, 10, 12, 15 years sometimes. College, you know, the turnover is so amazingly quick that you can sort of lose touch with guys very quickly. And, and it's easy to see, you know, or, or it's interesting to see how, how they sort of spread out in the world, what kind of jobs they end up with, um, all, all sorts of, you know, things like that. Um, let's get into some Penn State guys because I, I know you have a, a few for us. Um, what's your, uh, what's your most, uh, shall we say odd Penn state, uh, story that you can give us? Yeah. Well, I think the one that stands out to me because he's just so recognizable is Kajana Carter, who, you know, I grew up in central Ohio. So I remember when he picked Penn state over Ohio state, we were crushed by it. And then to get drafted by the Bengals, it seemed like a dream come true, blows out his knee on one of his first preseason carries and ends up not having the NFL career that people expected. Now, for him to be down in South Florida running his own sanitation company and sterilization company just seems so far out of left field. I mean, there is actually a tie into his NFL career because he had a staph infection during his time in the NFL, you know, just another medical ailment for him. But he said that it made him think a lot about how unsanitary medical devices and just stuff around workplaces are. So, you know, he made this company to sterilize work equipment and things like that so that people, you know, don't get sick, don't get things like a staph infection. And I think that there's certainly a market out there. I mean, if you think about proteins, you know, you hear about these horror stories or the thing that happened out in Iowa with all the guys getting sick um, or even just employers where, you know, people get sick and you end up getting sued for it, then you could be out, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So, you know, Stepping back a little bit, it makes us a little bit of sense. But when you just hear Kajana Carter run his own sterilization company, it just kind of hits you like uh, out of the blue. And uh, I'm fairly sure that Penn State uses a lot of his products. And, and I'm, I'm almost 100% sure that I had read a story recently where he had come back to uh, to campus and was actually 
not necessarily selling because I'm sure it wasn't exactly a hard sell for him to <laughs> yeah, right. to get his products in the door. But uh, it, it's it's great to see guys like him doing well. And, you know, that's sort of my – Kajana's college career is sort of my uh, my wheelhouse in my years in college. I, I was there from 94 until 98, and that 1994 Penn State team was just – oh, God – just just thinking about that offense was was amazing. How did you, Mr. Jim Weber, as a kid growing up in Central Ohio, go to Michigan? Yeah, you know, I actually grew up a Buckeye fan, and I just, you know, I applied to Michigan not really knowing where and I wanted to go to school. And when I visited it, you know, I know a lot of people say this, you just kind of fall in love with the place as soon as you get to the school. Um, a lot of people where they end up going, so... It's funny because my freshman year was 2000, and, you know, we beat John Cooper that fall. And then the next year, we hired Jim Trestle, and we essentially haven't won since. So I've taken my punishment for pulling a Benedict Arnold on Ohio State. But <laughs> I do think it's interesting when you talk about, you know, you're always interested in the guys that you were in college with. And that's what I've noticed is that people that come to the site, they always want to know, hey, hey where's that guy that, you know, I – you know, grew up watching or was in school watching. So, you know, I'm always kind of interested in where's John Navarre or Chris Perry. And, you know, John Navarre is working in a steel factory in Wisconsin. And that's just kind of like one of the classic where are they now stories that, you know, I guess it probably doesn't seem that out of the blue that John Navarre works at a steel factory. That probably actually sounds just about right to a lot of people. (laughs) But it's just kind of mind-blowing to think that, you know, a decade ago, this guy was leading one of the best programs in the country. And now he's, you know, just like us. And he collected a few NFL checks, too, along the way. Yeah, he did. But, you know, one of the guys I want to mention that was there while you were in college is Curtis Enos. I mean, that's another fascinating story. I think people are also really interested in the NFL bus because yeah. you just never know which way it's going to go. And Curtis Enos laid so low for so long. I remember, you know, he's another guy that was from Ohio and I couldn't really get a read on, on what he was doing when I started this site about two years ago. Then, you know, word got out that he was a police officer in Ohio, which was, you know, just phenomenal that Curtis Enos ended up patrolling the streets as a cop. And then he actually ended up becoming a high school head coach in the Dayton area. Um, but then a whole bunch of controversy started last fall because people came out and said there was an allegation that Curtis Enos asked for sexual favors while he was in uniform, then he came back and said that it was part of like a sting operation or something like that. (laughs) So then it became a war of words between Curtis Enos and and this woman. Um, Obviously not an ideal situation for a school district that, you know, has hired this football coach and he's doing pretty well. So, you know, they don't want to let him go, but you obviously don't want something like that hanging over your program. So I find it fascinating that, you know, 13, 14 years after he played his last NFL football game, he's still, you know, around the football field with lots of controversy around him, which just seemed like that was his entire NFL career. Uh, Jeff, who are some guys you'd like to hear about? Uh, I'm just having a good time listening to these stories, uh, whoever Jim has, but uh, I know a couple that at least the the readers and listeners are going to want to talk about are some that Jim and I had mentioned. Uh, a fan favorite for, for Black Shoe Diaries, readers at least, has definitely been Graham Zug. He achieved some sort of a legend status on the site for for reasonings that are beyond me. So 
if Jim could shed a little light on what's going on with him, that would be great. Yeah, he actually, I looked him up, and he is the sales manager at Miracle Grow. So, you know, that, that seemed kind of odd to me that he would go straight into working for a fertilizer company. But I don't know if there's some connection there he had from when he played football that he got to know people that work in fertilization or grass. I, I have no idea what the connection is there. Um, but he's living in Lancaster and, and doing that, which, you know, I, I think there is something about the uh, – I believe he was a former walk-on. There's something about guys like that that you just always uh, – you know, want to know what they're doing now and love cheering for them. Yeah, he was yeah, he, he's a former walk-on from, I believe, Mannheim um, in the eastern part of the state. And, and he just took on a, an identity on the site um, as, as kind of a just everyone's favorite. It was kind of a reliable wide receiver that, that you could get behind as, like, like you said, a former walk-on. And uh, I know he's always talking on Twitter and certain other things about all these different job openings and opportunities he's getting. So it's good to see that at least um, he's been successful. As- yeah, and, and he's a bright guy. And I mean, he comes from you know, a family. His dad's a dentist in the Lancaster area. Uh, his sister was a field hockey player at Penn State, too. Right. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that whatever Graham Zug does, he'll he'll probably be a more likely than not successful in his, in his endeavors. One guy who's been in the uh, news most recently is former fullback, Matt Hahn, who married one of Tiger Woods, uh, mistresses, Rachel, you could tell, uh, what else can you tell us about him? Yeah, I was pretty fascinated by this story because, you know, it seems like there's, it's always in the tabloids what's going on with Tiger Woods and his mistress. And I remember seeing meet the New York post one day that she had gotten married. It was kind of, you know, glanced over it, didn't really think much about it. And then when I saw on a site that it was to a former Penn State football player, I thought, well, how in the world does that happen? Um, so I looked it up. You know, I, I don't remember Matt Hodden playing, but, you know, I looked into his career and found that she's actually about a decade older than him. Yeah, and yes, it, or she he, is. He's uh, an insurance bro- broker in San Francisco, and I, I don't really know what she was doing in San Francisco, how they met. Um, I know the Post actually contacted him and asked him, you know, what are your feelings about her past? Um, obviously not a good indicator of, of what she's like to show that she was Tiger Woods' mistress, but he said that he doesn't judge anyone. Um, so, you know, now there's rumors already that she's pregnant with his child. I have no idea if that's true. I mean, who can keep up with the celebrity weddings one day? You know, there's pregnancy rumors the next day they're divorced, but... You know, I, I hope it works out, but it certainly seems pretty surreal, like something out of a, a reality show for this guy who's a decade younger to elope with Tiger Woods mistresses while they were attending someone else's wedding in Las Vegas. <laughs> I don't even know where he would, I mean, meet her if it was Las Vegas. I guess that's possibly understandable. But where does an insurance agent 10 years younger than some woman that just got out of being dragged through the mud in gossip magazines it's it is quite fascinating yeah and i i love one fact when i was looking up the story that matt Hahn can now claim that he was married in the same las vegas chapel as britney spears <laughs> i'm looking at so. that right now actually <laughs> yes the pair yeah, exchanged so vows in front of 12 friends at the little white wedding chapel in las vegas it's an yeah. instant resume booster i suppose 
Yeah. And who knows? Maybe there is a reality show in his future. I know a guy, and a guy from my hometown um, named Jason Hoppy married uh, one of the Real Housewives from I don't know New Jersey or New York, whatever. That Bethany, uh, Bethany Frankel, and now he's on TV constantly, <laughs> and they're this you know sort of you know money accumulating power couple. So maybe that's in in Matt Hunt's future. Yeah. If they could spin that into a show somehow. Yeah, and he definitely doesn't need to worry about money anymore because I have no idea what she got paid from Tiger Woods, but I remember she was about to have a press conference yeah. talking about their history, and then all of a sudden she got paid and we never heard from her again. So <laughs> that went away. You can imagine how much, how much money she received for that. Yeah. I hope you didn't have to sign a prenup. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, even, if, even if he did, Matt Hahn... Uh, handsome, in shape, he'll uh, he'll be fine no matter. Living uh, the life, living the life is is absolutely right. <laughs> and um, our one last guy that I know a lot of our readers want to check in on is Daryl Clark. Um, last we uh, saw him, he was sort of bouncing around some of the secondary leagues like the CFL and the UFL, which I believe is now defunct. Um, what can you tell us about old uh, Captain Clark? Yeah, so he. You know, the latest read I had on him was that he was released by the Omaha Nighthawks uh, last month, or I guess September, so two months ago now. But, you know, it's, it was tough competition because he was going against Heisman winners Eric Crouch and Troy Smith and Jeremiah Masoli from Oregon slash Ole Miss. So, right. you know, that, that's tough to break into that lineup. I would imagine now, you know, with the UFL's future up in the air, that Canada would be a good option. Um, I know that Chris Leak recently signed in the AFL, so you know if, and I know that Brad Pank, Brad Banks from Iowa is also playing in the Arena League. So I would certainly think there'd be an opening there for Daryl Clark if he wants to. Um, certainly seems like too talented a guy to not be playing at all. Um, but I and I am fascinated by the fact that Michael Robinson's still in the league as a running back, fullback. Yeah. I think that's one of the great success stories because you know that's one of those guys got just assumed you know, you wouldn't hear from again because he was a great college player, but he's not an NFL quarterback. So hats off to him for carving out a niche in the NFL. He's also a great leader, which everybody that has followed him through at least the 05 season realized, and, and it shows because I believe uh, he's the special teams captain, or at least was when he was in San Francisco. I don't know if he still is um, is now, but uh, yeah, he's he's definitely one of the uh, one of the success stories out of Penn State as well. Even Anthony Morelli, who uh, has sort of been the the butt of many a joke in uh, in Penn State land, was doing quite well, I believe, in the Arena League out in Pittsburgh, wasn't he, Josh? Yeah, he bounced around after a couple attempts in the NFL with uh, Arizona, um, among others. He he was Pittsburgh had him dropped him and picked him up again and I'm I'm not sure if he's still on the team or not but uh, he's yeah he's he did okay enough to be picked up at least twice yeah so um, when you, when we did the original interview when Jeff did the original interview with you Jim um, a few months ago maybe it was just a few weeks ago uh, my my timeline has been completely thrown off by this wildly surprising successful season here in Penn State land. Um, you mentioned guys like Tony Mandarich and Ruben Drones and uh, I believe Ryan Leaf. What's one more just completely off-the-wall athlete that you have found, basketball, football, any school, that 
you just were absolutely shocked when you heard about what they're up to these days. Yeah, well, I'd say one that just cracks me up whenever I read about it is Ronnie Sykley from Miami Heat, Syracuse. You know, the fact that he is now a South Beach DJ, (laughs) that is a jet-setting guy. You know, I was talking to him uh, about, you know, where he plays in the clubs, and he says, you know, he books places from L.A., Las Vegas, New York, Miami, uh, he goes to overseas to work the clubs in Ibiza, which is like, you know, uh, Europe's Cancun. So he goes to all the hottest clubs in the world. And if you go onto YouTube and type in Ronnie Cycle DJ, you'll see him, you know, working these parties with dry ice coming out of the ventilation system. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just hilarious to see this seven-foot guy doing the ones and twos. Um, you know, with a drink in hand and a cigarette in the other at this super ritzy club. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking at a New York Times story on it right now. I was just he's, on his website. It looks awesome. I want to go to there. 45 years old, 6 foot 11, DJing. DJing his ass off all over the world. Fantastic. Yeah, I was, was going to say that I'm planning on going to for my bachelor party down in Miami and I joke to my friends that I'd love them to get Ronnie Cycli, but I have a feeling he's way out of my price range. So. <laughs> yeah, you might you might not be able to afford the wedding after you get Ronnie Cycli. <laughs> yeah, but that would be that that is my dream bachelor party is Ronnie Cycli DJing it. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you very much for joining us, Jim Weber of LostLetterman.com. Go check out the site. You will spend hours and hours and hours sifting through. Uh, the database there and, and, and finding stories that you will uh, never believe and nev- never be able to convince your friends are actually true. Much like Ronnie Cycli, seven foot international DJ sensation. <laughs> Jim, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me guys. Thanks Jim. Once again, thanks to Jim Weber for joining us here on the podcast. Jeff is sticking around. We're going to talk a little Penn State football and whatever that thing was that happened to Beaver Stadium on Saturday night. Um, just in, in, in minor preparation for this, because we don't really rehearse these things, I pulled up the box score of the game, and I'm still just in awe of, of well, first of all, that this was a game between two Division One football teams, because it sure didn't look like it. And how how did Penn State win this game? I mean, Grant, the defense was incredible, as it has been just about all year. But just looking at the passing stats, 9 for 28, 1 interception, 98 passing And that's your yards. better quarterback. Yeah. Well, and, and, well, yeah, if you want to take out the four Bolden incompletions, it's still 9 for 24, which is still awful. Um, 2.7 yards per rush for Penn State. This is, and yeah, like you said, this is your winning team, and somehow, some way, uh, if you if you want to put it in soccer terms, they waited until the 58th minute, or the 59th minute to uh, to score their first touchdown, but it was enough. And you just kind of felt that they had that on the last the last drive. I don't I, maybe it was just me, but it was just it seemed like 
they were waiting and they were just breaking my heart for 59 minutes and I knew they had one last drive in them and maybe it was Moy coming off the bench although it should be noted he was in the game earlier so yeah it wasn't his first appearance but uh, maybe he was a spark. I don't know. But, yeah, that first 59 minutes, it was getting, it wasn't fun to watch. Getting that first first down on the last drive is just, you know, I don't want to break into weird sports announcing cliches, but it's so, you know, that's the key, really. You have to get that first first down. Then, you you know, you sort of calm down and say, okay, now we can, you know, start putting something together here. Yeah, they knew they weren't going for it all. It wasn't going to be an 80-yard bomb. I mean, they weren't throwing uh, a fly route to Mike Wallace um, of the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's They were going to have to do a methodical drive all the way down the field, and that's Penn State Big Ten football. They just hadn't done that the 59 minutes before that drive. Yeah, if you take that 80-yard drive out, we're talking about, I mean, total yards was 209, so 129 for 58 minutes of football. And that's just sort of sort of the kind of game it was. They they fumbled six times and lost only two of them, which was sort of amazing in its own right. They got a, a rather charitable, in my opinion, call on that interception that was Denton Lynn wrestling away from the Illinois receiver. I could be uh, I could be wrong about that. It, no, it, I think that was I, I I could argue that both ways, but I I, I would say they got it wrong, but I'm not gonna. I'm not going to give it back. (laughs) Yeah, I'm certainly not going to give Nate Shieldhouse another chance to to put more points on the board. So I'll take it. That was questionable. What I don't think was questionable was the pass interference. And I haven't done enough um, Illinois blog trolling to know what the reaction was. But I don't think you can can look at that play and not call that, especially given the circumstances of the play. And I mean, two refs threw flags. That that alone is sufficient to me. It's sufficient evidence that two guys from completely different angles right. go through the same pass interference penalty flag. That's and and you know what? That was a perfect throw by McGloin too. <laughs> and, yeah, and, without that guy without a right arm. Um, yeah. They almost got it. Yeah. And and Moy in, in the post game said he couldn't believe that McGloin was throwing him the ball. Yeah, and it's like that. seriously have you met Matt McGloin? <laughs> is this is this the first time you two have run you know cross paths? Yeah. Of course he threw you that ball. And you know, just it's our own little luck of the Irish. It it worked, you know, and the defense, God love them, keeping the keeping this offense in games that they have no business being in. It's so true too though that defense is is holding this team together and, and you know, you would expect no less from a Penn State team, but how good are they? I mean, this offense is, outside of Salas Red, it's pretty anemic right They're now. They're really good. That defense is legit. They're Every really, really is good. clicking on all cylinders. They're peaking at the right time, especially heading into what's going to be a brutal November. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to think that they're doing it without their best pass rusher, and well, not their best pass rusher, the best edge pass rusher, right. and their best linebacker is, uh, it, it's mind-boggling it's it's, it's astounding it, it really is i mean they, they did lose you can argue that maddie was the best player on the team you might not be right but you you, you could make the argument between him and uh, devin still and silas red it, it's it's amazing that the defense has even 
held it together this long. And they've been pretty, pretty lucky with no severe injuries besides Mike Mowdy. Um, right, and that core was so deep, too, that the injury to Mowdy, while devastating as it was, didn't really set them back a ton because Stupar has st- uh, stepped up. Uh, I hope I didn't jinx him by saying that, but uh, he's done quite well uh, aside from that little uh, penalty he got against Illinois kicking the, the player's knee. He's been, he's been very good, very admirable in replacement, and Glenn Carson has been serviceable, even solid at middle linebacker, and Gerald Hodges has just been a beast. Yeah, that, I mean, that's... That's the guy, really, who has, uh, I, I won't use the, the magic words there, who has improved his performance greatly in uh, in, in Mounty's absence. He, he's, I mean, winning Big Ten Defensive Player of the Week two weeks in a row is right. uh, a hell of an accomplishment. Um, I think he's got something like 74 tackles in the last two games or something. Yeah. I mean, you look at the stat sheet at the end of the game, and you're like, okay, he had 18 more. Right, <laughs> and, and he's sort of become the uh, the pass rusher that they don't sort of organically have along that defensive line. They, certainly, they don't they don't have guys uh, at defensive end who are doing that. Although it must be said that, and, and I made this comment talking to uh, someone at my job today, the defensive ends may not be doing a lot from a sack perspective. But those guys, and and it should be said about the entire defensive line, especially guys like James Terry, who doesn't get a lot of credit for for the snaps he plays, those guys hustle downfield behind plays. They'll chase things down laterally and both, you know, and both laterally and and five yards down the field or ten yards down the field. They don't give up on plays, essentially. And, you know, if you're not going to make the sack or you're not going to stop the guy in the backfield as a defensive end, run it down. And those guys are running it down, and they should be commended for that as well. Yeah, definitely. And the way Larry Johnson is rotating that front line, at least, he doesn't have a bad lineman. So it's it's once Crawford or Lattimore get tired, or once Still or Hill need a breather, you can plug right in. Yeah, and, and they're, they they're all a little play flexible with the there. same mentality. They're a little flexible there. I mean, Stanley, Sean Stanley's been a good uh, edge rusher. He's another guy who's at least, you know, to, to again dip into sports cliches, he's at least a playmaker at that position. Mm-hmm. And they can even slide Daquan Jones out there from time to time and, and a few other guys. So they've, you know, any coaching staff's going to have to patch a few potholes throughout the season. And, and, and defensively, certainly, they've, uh, they've done a tremendous job. The question now, of course, is now that the big three games are here, after a week off, which is sorely needed, but certainly yeah. big guys like uh, Red and, and a few others that they need a rest, and even sort of mentally, it comes at, at a good time where they can, you know, sort of ref- reflect on the fact that they've miraculously <laughs> gotten to this point, five and zero in the Big Ten and eight and one overall, uh, and sort of just prepare themselves for the last push here at the end. Can the offense get enough points, and and really can the defense keep holding these opposing teams to low numbers, or at least low enough numbers that the offense can cash a few in? Certainly, the the competition gets incredibly fierce from this point forward. I wrote my post today about the uh, one loss teams that even now 
Penn State's best win is really Illinois. And their second best win is Temple. <laughs> because you know, after you see Iowa losing to Minnesota, the rest of their game sort of makes sense now. In a way. So, I don't know. What do you think about heading into these last three? Yeah, it's it's going to be tough. I've actually got a post I was working on earlier today about these last three games. And uh, the defense can do enough to keep them in at least the Ohio State game because that's another offense that is just mm-hmm. it, it's it's pretty abysmal. Um, that the defense should be able to stop them long enough for our offense to put points on the board. Nebraska and Wisconsin scare me, but I think we can hold Nebraska enough where if if Silas and McGloin are having a good day, that we can. We can put enough points on the board, and the, the best part is that it's obviously at home, last home game of the season, um, last home game of insert question mark here. <laughs> what, what do you think of that, by the way? I don't know. I don't know what to think anymore. <laughs> uh, it, well, you've been it's such a loaded this, question. Like, I'm sorry to even spring that on you. Yeah, you keep reading the same stories for 15 years. Um, obviously, it's going to be Joe's last season. The man can't live forever, despite the odds. But the more and more I read um, sources out of Happy Valley, people that know him, the more I think that this is going to be it. But again, I've said that for a couple of years. So, yeah. I mean, Nebraska at least strikes me, and, and I have no idea. Incidentally, I, I have no information, and I have no idea regarding Paterno. I, you know. It's going to be sprung on all of us, and maybe something will sort of bubble up during this bye week, especially next week. You know, if there's something going down, that there's going to be some sort of ceremony. But that's against everything that he stands for. He's the kind of guy that wants to go out Is with it a though? hand wave and kind of a let me go back home, pour a glass of Jack, yeah, and, you know, reminisce with Sue, Jay, and everyone else. I don't know. He seems to enjoy these celebrations to me. <laughs> he likes being lifted up on the players' shoulders. And, and yeah, that, I mean that one, that going out at whenever the last game is, he'll enjoy that. But he doesn't want, you know, a nation- nationwide tour going to no. Penn State alumni chapters and shit no. like that. You never, you never would have seen him announce before the season, "Hey, this is going to be my last year." And, right. I mean exactly. that that doesn't make sense for a million reasons. From he, it's annoying. <laughs> I'm still old enough to remember Dr. J's farewell tour, <laughs> where before every single game they're giving him presents like a rock, a rocking chair or a piece of the parquet floor from the Boston Gardener. Every single game, and after a while, you're just like, oh, fine. Yeah, it would have been a distraction because you have to deal with what's coming next. But yeah, that's why he'll he'll wait till the last possible moment and spring it on everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, and, and that's where the schedule, if they're planning on doing something like this, sort of works against them because if they announce it before the Nebraska game, there are still two more road games against really good teams mm-hmm. that are left, and suddenly Joe Paterno becomes the story. So, yeah, it, maybe the more I think about it, the, the less likely it is that something will be announced uh, regarding Joe Paterno and future Penn State head coach Urban Meyer. But, what? Yeah. You have inside sources. I I am an inside source now. Don't you know that? Uh, I'm concerned, and maybe it's the nature of my interest of what it's going to do if this is is this is the season. But what's it going to do with our, our recruits? We've got 16 commitments. We've got you know 
our guys out there hitting the the uh, the turf or the the pavement, as you will, with uh, with some important ones like Noah Spence. But if Joe says that's it in December or January, with a month before National Signing Day, what does that do? I don't think you lose anybody when you bring in a guy who won two national championships. Well, that's assuming that Urban Meyer is the guy. But what if you don't right, have yeah, a coach exactly. name? What if if Joe steps down and then and Curly and Spanier go through their their search? Do guys who maybe <laughs> the were on the fence Curly a little Rolodex. bit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if and that's that's sort of the interesting part on how this whole thing goes down. If it goes down, like, do they have someone basically? picked already yeah and there's no way that any of us can know that if they don't and, and you would think they would have to be anyone in their position would have to be prepared for this but at the same time you're not exactly going out and soliciting potential head coaches whether they're employed currently or, or not to say like hey you know if joe paterno does retire are you interested i i don't think you can do that that quietly that extensively, it would have to be a small handful of people, yeah, to keep it to keep it quiet. So if they really are interested in Urban Meyer and they and they have sort of a, a wink and nod agreement, okay. But past that, I mean, you know, if they if they don't, you don't want to see them fall into a situation like you know Notre Dame seems to every three years, and how Michigan did before they got Rich Rodriguez or Brady Hoke for that matter. Um, you, you you would hope that they're prepared. And for our complaints uh, about Graham Spanier and Tim Curley and the athletic department, for as numerous and and annoying and and whatever else they may be about that uh, that organization, they're not dummies. Generally speaking, like they run a pretty good ship, certainly financially. Yeah, they know how to run a business. Yeah. Uh, Graham Spanier knows what he's doing as the president of the university and, and Curly for, again, like you said, all the, the belly aching that gets said about him. He actually runs a pretty good uh, department as well. And you can just point to the other hires he's made. Yeah. Hard to argue with results overall. You look at the volleyball program, uh, the, the basketball program is going to be a home run. Hopefully um, certainly the wrestling program, uh, soccer programs are both very good. So you, you can see that, He's no sucker. You know, I, I think he's been sort of unfairly painted, perhaps by me as well. But they know what they're doing up there. And, and hopefully this being the biggest fish of them all, the football program, um, I would hope and expect that they at least have their ducks in a row if there's something afoot. If Joe Paterno suddenly says in you know, December, I'm, I can't wait to come back next year, <laughs> then we then we start the process all over again, like we do every single year. It seems and, exactly, and people well, will be outraged, and I will probably be one of them. I'm not going to lie, but you know what? What can you what can you do? And the guy's, uh, I think, proven by now that he's going to go when he wants to go or when he is taken from us. But nobody's pushing him out the door, and uh, and that's that. Um, regarding these last three games, as we sort of got off on a tangent oh, right. there. That's yeah, what we were talking remember about. we were talking about that? Um, I can see Nebraska sort of getting careless with the ball offensively. They're, they're certainly not above that. Uh, their their turnover, turnover margin miraculously is uh, even for the year, and I suspect that a, a good number of that 
in the uh, in the plus column came in their uh, non-conference schedule. I am uh, not ashamed to say that I'm probably making that up, but but I'm going to assume that because it seems that Taylor Martinez uh, and and the, the offense generally can be a little loose with the football. I like that against this Penn State defense, who has uh, produced a lot more turnovers this year than than certainly last year. I think and just more opportunistic and, and certainly the offense needs that. Yeah, they certainly do without, you know, like we've said before, the defense kept them in the Illinois game. So that doesn't need to be said again, but the offense needs to be put in the position to be able to score a lot more easily. They can't sustain those 80 yard drives throughout the, the course of the game. So hawking on those interceptions and forcing those fumbles, against Nebraska seemed to be one of the easier ways for us to, to kind of put this game away. And if we can get that early and often, it's something that, you know, it'll make my life a lot easier <laughs> sitting in the stands. Yeah, and, and what an arm punter Martinez is. Good Lord. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into that closer to the game, I'm sure. But, wow, that throwing motion makes Kevin well, Newsom look like Dan Marino. That, that running back, though, the Burkhead. Burkhead is very good. So he's legit. So I guess I, I. But the thing is, no running back scares me with this defense. Yeah, that's true. It's you know? it's tough. No, no running back scares me with this with this defense. So, I. Preliminarily, before you know, actually getting in, trying to break the game down, I feel pretty good about that one. At Ohio State, man, I. Uh, I that's don't the know. most important of all three of them. That's you the thing. That it, re- game, it really is. It opens up a whole world of scenarios. Because you don't want those guys to sneak in. <laughs> no, and it's so entirely possible, too. It if is. you look at the scenario breakdown, they can very easily yeah. um, take the division. That's why we all have to be Michigan fans on that last week of the season. If people were asking me on Twitter during the Ohio State um, game this past weekend, should I be cheering for Ohio State or Wisconsin? I kept replying, Ohio State, Ohio State. And now I totally regret that. Because yeah, look we had a, a post today about that, and it's – Yeah. I agree with that, that as that well. Was, that was the chance to finish them, as it turns out. And now they you know, they have they have renewed life. And it, it, wouldn't Jim Weber be happy if Michigan finally beat Ohio State? Oh, and I'm, wouldn't I'm, your wife be happy if Michigan finally beat Ohio State? That would be great because happy times in your house. Yeah, if we can take care of Nebraska and if we can take care of of Wisconsin, even if Ohio State beats us, yeah, we still take it. But so you win those two games, win win Ohio State and Nebraska. Oh yeah, and Wisconsin doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's essentially a tune up for the Shane McGregor is starting in Camp Randall. Who gives a damn? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're resting McGloin for the Big Twelve. The Big That's Ten right. Bold will get to start that game. <laughs> it's going to be like the old Indianapolis Colts sitting at fourteen and zero, playing, <laughs> playing Jim Sorgi. <laughs> Got to get experience. Team Venuto. Team Venuto. <laughs> I I I'm amazed. I'm just amazed that this team is eight and one. I owe you backflips. You do. And then you will owe me orthopedic surgery. But we'll, well, it's an even trade, I think. I know a good lawyer if you need one. <laughs> I don't know any good lawyers. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know a single good one. Sorry, not even you. No, I, I don't know one either. <laughs> we'll call uh, Pat Vint. Big Ron and the Noodle. 
Big Ron and the Noodle will come help us out because <laughs> you're all laid up at the with the bacchiotomy. And, uh, <laughs> this team is eleven and one. Oh God, I will. I I, I will start cutting off limbs if they're uh, uh, eleven and one. How about that? I'll up the uh, ante. I'll, hey, I'll take your your bets against this team all day long. <laughs> Everybody you will. Have a, a strong <laughs> I, record of speaking against them and them. The, and then them going out and winning. So I, I've never been so happy to be wrong. Continue to bet against them. I did say, and Kevin, uh, Kevin and I both said the eight and four before the season. So um, I believe I predicted losses to Iowa, and then the last three. Yikes, Iowa! Iowa. What's happening there? I, you know, that's it, reading through the Black Ark Old Pants comments is just pain. It's painful. It really is. I mean, because they always seem to do this. I mean, they lost to Minnesota last year, too. Right. And they finally, I mean, they finally broke through against Northwestern this year. But those are the games they lose. And that's, you know, as a sort of side effect of that, that's what drives Penn State fans crazy about always losing to Iowa, at least before this year, is that they play their, they always played before this year, their best game, it seemed, against Penn State. And and Jim mentioned something about Lloyd Carr's dominance over uh, over Penn State, and it's sort of this. I mean, they're sort of the same coach, aren't they? It's it, it, the, these games where it sort of evolves into Joe Paterno versus another stodgy uh, three yards on a cloud of dust man ball coach. They all sort of uh, had a pattern, whether it was Trestle or Carr or Ferentz, that you know, if if you try to win games ten seven all the time those guys were able to do it against Penn State. Yeah, they did have Penn State's number for a long time, but I'm glad to see some of those streaks breaking, although we didn't technically break Carr's streak. No. It took a, it took a, a dumpster fire in Ann Arbor for us to break that, and um, and uh, apparently a poor Ohio or uh, Iowa team for us to break that streak. So I don't care how it happens, as long as there's W's on the – on the season report card, I'll, yes, I'll take it. Yes, much, much like our 2011 season, as, as ugly as it may be. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's, the W is all that matters, and that's all the BCS computers see. Yeah. So it, yeah, the, that's, the ugliest uh, dog in the world can still be cute to somebody, and uh, this is our cute, ugly dog, the, the 2011 Pensy Denny Lions. The cute, ugly dog. Cute, ugly dog. And just want to nuzzle up with it and... And pretend it's not uh, look it in the face. Yeah, not look it in the face. <laughs> this this conversation can now go a number of ways. So um, let's just end it here. And uh, thank you for uh, thank you for filling in with Ke- uh, for Kevin. And uh, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. All right. See you later. See ya.